Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we, we do praise the name of Jesus. Our rock, our fortress, and our deliverer. And we praise you for the, the great grace that you've given us. And God, I, I pray that you would forgive me of the times that I think, even for a moment, even in a very small way, I kind of deserved the grace. That I've somehow earned a little bit of it. And in reality, I am so deeply sinful. My flesh just has such a control of me, and I am in such deep and desperate need of your grace and your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that through this dark word in Hosea 9, that you would show us your glory and your justice and our absolute and dire need of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I, I need you guys to listen really carefully to me here. Uh, and, and just don't take this wrong. Uh, but there's this kind of sweet moment in parenting. When your kid is just being a jerk and not listening. And in the, in the moment, not, and don't hear this wrong. But in the moment of disobedience, while walking away from you in disobedience, they just smoke their toe on something. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it, just, it just kind of feels good to watch. Um, it's like, man, you deserve that, you little punk. And I mean, don't hear me wrong. Like, I, I, I'm not like promoting anything, but just there's this moment of justice where it's like, like you feel like a prophet. You're like, I told you something would happen. And like, you, there's this like this vindication of like, ha, you got like mildly, mildly injured. Like we only celebrate the things that are like gone in 10 seconds, right? Like, um, but there's just, just kind of this sweet moment in watching someone get what they deserve and maybe a, a less controversial way to look at this would be like, I, you know, some, some of you might struggle with sin in heavy traffic, um, but I just have this dream that someday someone's going to cut me off and immediately get pulled over right in front of me, and I can just, ha ha, as I drive by, because it's, sometimes it's kind of sweet to watch someone get what they deserve, and there's, there's, a, there's, there's a moment of victory in there when you watch someone who's in uh, opposition with you in one way, shape, or form, get what they deserve. Uh, but we don't like it when we're the ones who, who get what we deserve, right? Like that's when we're like, hey, take it easy. Um, but God, God sent his prophets to tell the people, and Hosea is no exception, to tell the people, you're about to get what you deserve. And what you deserve is really bad. Because your sin is really bad. And we, 
we read in, um, I think it's Psalm 130, if God marked our iniquities, who could stand? And we think, oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be really bad if God like, even just took the last week and said, Chuck, here's all the wrong things you did in the last week. Like, that'd be bad, much, much less over my whole life. But in the prophets, it's what he does. He comes and he just starts shooting daggers. Here's your sin. Here's your other sin. And, and I remember this sin. And here's this sin. And here's this sin. And there's a consequence for all of this. And for Israel, getting what they deserved was deeply bad news. And Hosea 9, this, this might be the darkest chapter of Hosea's ministry. In his, what, what could have been anywhere from 30 to 50 years of ministry, I imagine when he brought this word to Israel, he was like, God, is that really what you want me to say? I'll say it, but I just, just need to be really, really careful that I'm, I'm saying the words of God here. And he did. He spoke God's words. But this is one of those moments in the prophet's where it's here's your sin, here's your sin, here's your consequence, and it's just boom, boom, boom. And some people, when they talk about the good news of the gospel, they say we need to talk about the bad news before we get to the good news. Well, Hosea 9 is the bad news. And it is, it's not just bad news, it's, it's really bad news. I saw a demotivational poster once that said it always gets darkest right before it goes pitch black. If that doesn't make you feel good, I don't know what will. Um, but that's Hosea 9. And it, the deeply bad news of getting what they deserve meant separation for God's people and God. And it meant separation from God's service and relationship. Let's start reading in Hosea 9. Rejoice not. I'm just going to read the first six verses here. Rejoice not, O Israel, Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall, shall fail them. And they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. And they shall eat the unclean food in Syria, and they shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do? On the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord. For behold, they are going away from, dis from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The deeply bad news of getting what they deserve meant they were going to be separated from God's service and relationship. And this is seen in a few ways in these verses. It's seen, first of all, in their provision and want. 
the example of Gomer is continuing to ring out. You've played the whore, you've sought the prostitute's wages, and that's what you're going to get. You want to get paid that way, you can get paid that way. You wanted to go to the threshing floors. You went to the threshing floors of all the others and said, fill me with your grain, fill me with your wine. God says, you're going you're to get the grain and the wine, and it's not going to feed you. It's not going to satisfy you. It's going to be like someone who's, who's afloat at sea and says, I'm thirsty, and they drink of the ocean, and they only leave more dehydrated. Your new wine shall fail you. They, they sought these wages, and that's what they got. They got wages that didn't satisfy, money that was worth nothing. God gave them exactly what they were going for, and sometimes that's, that's the best punishment God can give us, is to give us the thing that we think we want. And so they got what they wanted, but they did not get what they needed. We should not seek to be satisfied with what the world tells us will satisfy. And this is one of the great lies of what we call the prosperity gospel. That God's favor only appears in the ways, in the, in the exact forms that our culture desires most. That you get the prosperity, you get the health, and, that, and that's God's favor on you. And it doesn't allow for us to dig into the deeper things of God and to learn to trust God in the midst of trials, to grow in perseverance so that our faith of greater worth than gold may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus when He is revealed. That's what First Peter tells us. So let's not be satisfied with, the, with what the world tells us will satisfy us, but instead to seek God and His righteousness. You know, we think of David saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have no reason to have want in my life because of my shepherd. He takes me to green pastures. He makes me lie down by still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no reason or right or logical possibility of want. And Israel has said, the nations are my shepherd. Baal is my shepherd. I will never be satisfied. Baal is my shepherd. I will go to destruction as a malnourished sheep. So they've sought provision and they've been left with want. And they also, in losing, being separated from God's service and relationship, they lose a lot of their identity and distinction. They shall not, verse 3, remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim, remember where the tribe of Ephraim comes from? This, isn't, this is the grandson of Jacob, not one of his sons. It's one of Joseph's sons. Ephraim, you're going back to Egypt. And they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. And we have this this image, Assyria and Egypt, they were in different directions. Israel's being torn. They're being taken, not just from their land, not as a whole group from their land. They're being separated from each other, separated from their land. The land that God promised to Abraham. The land that was their inheritance. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land where if they walked with God, they would experience His good grace. 
They're being separated from it. This is like taking a Nebraskan out and forcing them to live in Iowa. It's taxing on the soul. They're removed from the land. And they're being removed from the land as a punishment from their sin and as a means of God caring for the land. In, in Hosea 4.3, remember back, it said that the land mourns because of the sin of the people. The land is mourning. And they are forced, so they're taken away from their land, their home, their property. And they're, they're not only taken away from their land, they're taken away from their food that's better than everyone else's. And they're forced to eat unclean food in Assyria. Everything that seemed to make them special as the people of God is being stripped away. Everything that showed their relationship with God is being pulled away from them. But the truth is, the land and the food, that's not what made them special. That's not what made them distinct. They were, out, they were visible appearances of what made them distinct. What was supposed to make them distinct was their faith in God. That there are people that believed his promises. That there are people that believed that they would offer sacrifices, God would accept them, and their sins would be forgiven. That there, they were to be a people that believed we could work six years and take the seventh year as a Sabbath, and God would provide, and the land would rest, and all of our debts would be forgiven against each other. They were a land, they were a people that were, by faith, supposed to stand out to the nations so the nations could know that the God of all creation is in Israel, and that the nations could know him through them. But the only things they had really going for them out of this was that they were still on their land and they were still eating clean food. They had lost the faith. And this is, this is a warning I think we need to be really careful of. Because there, there are parts of the church in America that are so quick to assimilate to who God is or to, to who the culture is. They, they try to assimilate God to who the culture is. And it, it's not our church attendance that sets us apart. It's not that we take communion that sets us apart. It's not that we baptize people that sets us apart. It's that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and through faith in him, we can become a new person. That the old would be gone, the new would come. Our identity in Christ, our belief in Christ, our faith is what sets us apart. They had lost what set them apart, and they only had appearances left of that. And God said, I'm just going to take away the appearances. Let's just call a spade a spade. You can go back to being Egyptians. I'll make you Assyrians. You're not my people anymore. There's no faith here. And then they also lose their worship and acceptance. They shall not pour out drink offerings to the Lord. Their sacrifices shall not please Him. They're not going to do sacrifices. If they try, it won't do any good. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. This bread that they would sacrifice will just be a reminder that they're separated from God. 
Their bread will, only be, will be for hunger only. It won't be a sacrifice to God. And then what are you going to do on the day of the appointed festival? What are you going to do, Israel, when Passover rolls around? What are you going to do when the Feast of Booths rolls around? You are going away from destruction. Egypt will gather you up. And there's this verse at the end of weeds. Nettles will possess their precious things. Thorns will be in their tents. God is no longer putting up with the fickle forms of expression that Israel was giving him. He's no longer putting up with their planned festivals. He's no longer putting up with their empty sacrifices. He's going to remove them and, and to the point where the least desirable plants will take over what would have been their precious things. Think about it. If you're living somewhere, in your yard, if poison ivy starts cropping up, you go buy like the strongest roundup you can. If there's thistles and nettles growing in your yard, you get rid of them as fast as you can. And here the nettles are going to grow up around their precious silver. And the thistles are going to take over their tents. They're going to be removed. And the, the imagery here is it's going to, they're not just going to like pack up all their belongings and leave. They're going to be removed at such a pace that they leave behind these things. And the, the undesirable weeds just take over. This should have, I don't know how it was heard for everyone. But the idea of God saying, you won't sacrifice to me anymore. You, and, and even if you try, I won't accept it. This, this should have been the saddest thing for them. That God would say, you're not going to worship me. I'm not, I'm not going to let you even try to bring sacrifices to me. Your sin has become that much of a problem. The separation here. That, that they are being removed from worship. That they are, you know, the other time I think in Scripture of, of being removed from somewhere and weeds coming in is Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden where there were no thistles and he had to work the ground where there were thistles. That they are being removed from God's presence. They are being removed from God's worship. We should not take for granted God's desire and acceptance of our worship. God, God is a lot of things. Needy is not one of them. God, as we went to bed last night, wasn't thinking, oh, I hope they remembered to change their clocks so they can sing to me tomorrow. Because if they don't, I just don't know what I'll do. God is going to be worshipped. He invites us to worship. He takes pleasure in our worship. But He's not going to pander to us. He's not going to say, you know what, you were a real jerk all week, but thanks for singing that song to me. That made everything better. You know, you have a lot of greed in your heart, but, the, but showing up with your shirt tucked in was a nice touch. It meant a lot to me. You, you put on your good shoes. That's special. Our worship is an act of service to God. He won't accept fake worship. 
And we shouldn't go into worship thinking it's about having the right set list so that we can really get something out of the songs. But instead, it's a giving of ourselves, our, our, our expression, our money, our energy for God's name and out of an affectionate gratitude to him. And may he be praised. I hope that the desire of our hearts as we, as we worship, whether it's in a Sunday morning service or, or Tuesday afternoon in a meeting at work, that our worship to God would be, God, here's my energy, here's my effort, here's myself. I'm a living sacrifice to you. Would you use me? That we wouldn't just consign worship to only music or only a tithe or a or a mission trip that we do here and there, but that would be our lives. And that God would accept it. That we would go through life worshiping God and feel his smile on us. And feel his pleasure on us. And, and the, the words here in verses 4 through 6 are, Israel, I'm not going to smile on you. I have no pleasure in your worship. I hate the show of it. So much so, like in other prophets, God says, oh, that you would shut the doors of the temple. But here he goes, I'm just going to remove you completely away from the land. I'm evicting you. Because of how you're treating me and my name and my land. It's not yours. It's mine. And I will be glorified. So the deeply bad news isn't just that they were separated from God's service and relationship, but that they were also separated from God's blessing and grace. Starting in verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Like Israel, it's time to get serious. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity and great hatred, the prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season, I saw your father's. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to a thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O oh Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Even every evil of theirs in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. The root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. 
They shall be wanderers among the nations. And you wonder why the prophets were not popular. They're separated from God's blessing and grace. And they're separated because they've despised God's word. Look how the prophet is treated. He's a fool. He's mad because of their sin and hatred. And and here we have an accurate description of the prophet. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with God. The prophet is God saying, people, turn your lives around. Come walk with me. But everywhere he went, there was a fowler's snare. snare. Everywhere he went. The author of Hebrews in 11, in the Hall of Faith, says that the world was not worthy of these prophets. The Old Testament prophets were, you know, Jesus in Luke 20. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. There's a guy that owned a vineyard. And he leased it out to some tenants. And after a while, he said, oh, I'm going to get my, my fruit. So he sent someone to get the fruit from his vineyard. And they, they shooed him away. And he sent someone else, and they beat him up. He sent someone else, they beat him worse. And finally, he sent his own son, and they killed him. Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos. These are the men God was sending to his vineyard to get the fruit, to get his pay, to get his worship. And they were beaten, and they were killed, and they were cast away. They were thrown into cisterns. You know, in Daniel 5, we have Belshazzar, Babylonian king, having a wild party, and a floating hand writes on the wall. Freaks him out. Daniel... The prophet of God comes and tells him what it means, and he worships God. Nebuchadnezzar, multiple times, has these moments of seeing the might of God and praises him. If if these evil kings can see it and listen to the prophets of God and honor them, why can't the people of God? Those who are supposed to be the covenant people of God, they hate him. And sometimes this is well-masked hatred of God and His Word. And it is in our culture where we have a lot of places who call themselves churches and they do what they call preaching from God's Word. But their, their exegetical work is like that of Simone Biles on the floor exercise. It's tremendous gymnastics to get to where they are. It's self-defeating logic. And and it's done in a way to say, this part of God's word, I don't like it, so I'm going to do all my, my hermeneutical gymnastics to conform God into my likeness. To say, you know what, God really isn't that offended by that sin after all. In fact, he's ordained it. He's perfectly fine with it. Love is love. And they twist Scripture by asking questions that sound less like they're coming from an under-shepherd of God's flock and more like they're coming from a snake in the garden. They look like God's people, but they do not know God's heart. They despise His Word. God won't bless that. 
They also despise God's holiness. They have deeply corrupted themselves. Verse 9 is in the days of Gibeah. This is a reference to Judges 19. And here's what you need to know about Judges. The higher the chapter number, the worse it is. Chapter 19 is towards the end. And a Levite had a concubine, went to a village, and there's a reenactment of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it gets worse. And a woman dies because she's mistreated and thought of as an object. And it's a great injustice, and it alarms the people of Israel to, a, to an extent. And God says, this, you, you guys are still like this. You're still that evil. And he says, I will... He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. This is a direct contrast to in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 34, where, where he's talking about the new covenant. He says, no longer shall each one teach, uh, teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then listen to this. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. But here in Hosea, it's turned on the head. I will remember their iniquity. I will punish their sins. Instead of forgetfulness and forgiveness, it will be remembrance and justice. They've despised God's holiness, and God isn't going to let it go. And they've also despised his salvation. They were like grapes in the wilderness. They were like a fig tree in its season. I saw your fathers. I called them out of the wilderness. I set them apart for me. But then we got to Baal Peor. And this is a recounting of Numbers 25. I, I saw them in the wilderness. I saw them in Egypt. I, I pulled them out of Egypt. They're wandering the wilderness. I see them. They're like wild grapes, like figs. And there's so much potential here. And I start cultivating it. And on our journey... They, they encounter Baal, and in Numbers 25 it said, and Israel put themselves under the yoke of Baal. And they never stopped. Because they didn't realize that their sin goes longer than they intend. And they lose the glory of God. My glory, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. As a nation, the glory of God will leave, and this is no small thing. I, I think of in 1 Samuel when the, the Ark of the Covenant got, got captured by the Philistines. They said, the glory of God has departed us, and the nation mourned. And here he says, the glory of God will leave. And this is going to be felt by everyone, and it's going to be felt down in the personal level. And there's this dark imagery over and over again of parents losing kids or not able to have kids. And God gives children as an inheritance, as joy, as the glory of the parents, and that is removed. And this could have been taken as a literal thing that would happen, or as parents, all their hopes and dreams of raising their children in Israel is dashed away because now they're in Egypt and Assyria. And there's no joy for their kids to be had. And they're just going to be assimilated into the nations, and they're going to lose their identity. 
And the chapter ends with verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. They lose their mission. God had called them. Abraham, your descendant, will bless the nations. And here, this whole chunk of the family tree of Abraham is being cut off and will just blend in with the nations. Not letting them, the nations know about the redemption they can have. but blending in with the nations and being completely lost apart from God. A few weeks ago, I was watching the news and there was a sentencing of a very well-known trial, very well-known case in Iowa, and multiple people were being sentenced in the connection of the death of one individual. And each person had a slightly different sentence, each person had a slightly different role in the death of this individual. And there, I remember sitting on my couch watching the news, and it talks about a couple people, and they said they're going to get life in prison without parole. I'm like, yeah, yeah, they are. That's what they deserve. And then there were some other people who got off on plea deals, and it was like, oh, they're only going to serve 10 years in prison for all that they did to this poor young girl? And in the same moment as I was very satisfied with the justice going to some people in the case, I was very distraught at the lack of justice or my perception of the lack of justice because they deserved more. And it is so easy, at least for me, to look at cases like this and to put myself in some sort of judge robe and give myself a gavel and say justice has been done or more justice is required. And at the same time that I want to demand so much justice for these other people and exact punishment on people I don't know about crimes they did to people I've never heard of, how can I expect for God not to have the same sort of justice to me and my sin? Because those people on that news, they did nothing to me. They did nothing to anyone I know. And I can get so angry. And how can I have such a strong sense of need for justice against them and not expect God to have an equal or stronger sense of justice regarding sins done against him by me? And it's easy from the vantage point of the future to look back at Israel And say, oh, they abandoned the covenant. They deserve it. But my sin smells just as bad. My sin has the same stench. Our sin is no less offensive. Our subtle forms of idolatry that we sneak in are no less appalling. And the wages of my sin is death. And the wages of your sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Psalm 108, 
psalmist is praying and he's, it's this song and prayer remembering God's salvation and what he's done for the people. Or Psalm 106, sorry. 106 verse 8. Yet he saved them. Our, our fathers, they were in Egypt, verse 7, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled at the Red Sea. Yet, He, God, saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. And we are saved for His name's sake. Let's pray. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God, we pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your mercy. We thank you for the word in James that mercy triumphs over judgment. And God, we are here this morning to say we need your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.